0: You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Well, good evening. Again, if we haven't met, my name is Dalton, one of the pastors here. And I want to start um, by reading a quote from an article but written by pastor and author David Mathis on the topic of Good Friday. And here's what he says. It was the single most horrible day in the history of the world. No incident has ever been more tragic. No future event will ever match it. No surprise attack, nor political assassination, no financial collapse, no military invasion, no atomic detonation or nuclear warfare, no catalysmic event or act of terror, no large scale famine or disease, not even slave trading, ethnic cleansing or decade long religious warning uh, warring can ellipse the darkness of that day. No suffering has ever been so unfitting. No human has ever been so unjustly treated because no other human has ever been so worthy of praise. No one else has ever lived without sin. No other human has ever been God himself. No horror surpasses what transpired on a hill outside Jerusalem almost two millennia ago. And yet we call it Good Friday. And So here's why I start by reading that this evening. I started this with this quote because of the fact that it so clearly captures the immense irony that this day brings with it as we reflect on the most horrific event in the history of the world. But like, do you ever just think about how strange it sounds that we call this day good as it's also a day meant to remember the gruesome death of an innocent man who was intimately betrayed? falsely tried, brutally beaten and repeatedly mocked and humiliated all before being sentenced to death by crucifixion on a Roman cross outside the city of his people. Like, do you see the irony here? Because it's, it's there. And because this is the case, there's a question that I want to ask you guys tonight. And the question is fairly simple. It's just, it's not meant to stump you or trick you. It's just a simple five worded question that desires an honest answer. And though it's a simple question, it's also a serious one that demands some serious consideration and understanding before answering. And so the question is this, why is Good Friday good? In other words, what about Good Friday makes it good? Because as we just saw through a quick recounting of this event that took place on a Friday roughly 2,000 years ago, it certainly doesn't sound like it was a very good day at all. So how is it good? before we go any further, I just want to stop and have us just pray and ask God to to reveal this answer to us, that he would give us the eyes to see the goodness of Good Friday. So would you pray with me? Father, that, that is our ask. By your spirit, would you just open our eyes so that we could see the good news and the goodness of Friday as we look to the cross of Jesus? Would you help us to see it? More than that, Lord, would you help us to believe it and live in light of that. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as as Maggie just read, the text that we're going to be in tonight is Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. So if you have your Bibles, I, I would invite you to open them with me uh, and turn with Ephesians chapter 2. So we're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 5. Uh, so again, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you, we do have some hardback black ones right at that table over there. I encourage you to grab one, especially if you don't own a Bible. Take one of those, bring it home with you. That is our gift um, to you. So the question is, why is Good Friday good? Well, thankfully, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is going to give us this answer to this question in our passage this evening. And so look with me at verse, at verse one. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So there it is. This is why Good Friday is good news. So if you're taking notes, the answer to the question is this. Good Friday is good because God so, because it is God's solution to our greatest problem. And until we finally understand the depth and the severity of our problem, we will never fully understand the magnitude and the greatness of God's solution to our problem in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so what's the problem? Well, we see clearly in verse 1 as Paul gives us this diagnosis, the problem is that we are dead. And I want to press into this idea just a little further because I've hung around enough Christian circles to hear some strange interpretations of this text where people read things into this verse and make this say things that it was never intended to say, specifically when it comes to the adjective that Paul uses to describe us here. Notice it doesn't say you were sick or stuck or slightly dead in your trespasses and sins. It doesn't say that. My Bible Bible says that you were dead. And the Greek word is nekros, which literally means a lifeless, dead body or a corpse. And so when Paul was thinking of a way to describe our problem and our natural condition apart from Christ, this is what he sees. He sees a dead, lifeless, spiritual corpse with no pulse towards the thing of God, to to the things of God. And I don't know if you've been to many funerals lately, but here's what I've noticed about someone who is dead. When you see them, they almost look fake. If you touch them, they feel cold and hard. If you talk to them, they will not respond to you. If you shake them or poke them, they will not move a muscle. They just lay there. And I promise you, if you ask any recent widow or any grieving parent, they will be the first to tell you it doesn't matter how many tears you cry or how loud you scream, wake up. Would you just come back? just open your eyes. Nothing happens. They don't even flinch. And why is that? Well, as we see, it's because they are dead. They're not sick. They're not sleeping. They're not even slightly diseased, just dead. And according to Paul, spiritually speaking, this is an exact representation of our greatest problem. But he doesn't just stop with a a diagnosis. He then goes on to describe the symptoms that come as a result of our deadness. And there are three of them that I want you to notice here. So picking up in verse 2, we read, In which you once walked following the course of this world. There's the first one. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the son's of disobedience. There's number two among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And there's number three. Here you have the world, the devil, and the flesh. And these three are the the three great powers at play in your life, all of which are trying to keep you enslaved in your deadness in sin. And unless we understand the interplay between these three of the world, the devil, and the flesh, we will truly never understand the sinfulness of our sin. And if we don't understand that, then we don't understand the cross. And if we don't understand the cross, then we will not be able to see why Good Friday is good. So at the remaining time that I have left, I just want to briefly unpack these three symptoms or these three powers at play and see how they are, how God uses them to solve our greatest problem through the cross. So starting with the world, the first thing we learn about it is that it has a course or a current to it. And just like a lifeless fish or a a dead log, by nature, in our spiritual condition, in our deadness, we're all just floating along its streams. Or to use the words from our text, we were following the course of this world. And if that doesn't seem bad, it's probably because you don't realize the course that it's on in the direction that it's going, as it's not going towards God, but it's going away from him in the exact opposite direction. And we know this because we see it clearly displayed in the ungodly trends and patterns of our Genesis 3 world that we're living in. Whether it be materialism, consumerism, naturalism, individualism, the desire for instant gratification or the unrelenting, never-ending pursuit of success and recognition which often comes at the expense of others. These are sinful patterns that exist in our world and all of us have a natural bent towards them. This is why on average, just looking at America alone, each year roughly 45% of marriages end in divorce and over 26,000 people die by homicide and approximately 132 lives are given over to suicide each day the world is broken and it's not how it should be it is not how god intended it to be and from the moment we got here this is all that we've known it's been the current the current that we swim in the playground that we play in and it's this graveyard we consider a home for our spiritual corpses And all of us, by our very nature, are following this course and are living in its sinful ruts and rhythms that slowly but surely draw us further and further away from from God and his good design for this place. But the worst part about it is the fact that apart from Jesus, we don't just live here. We actually love it here. But as we see from the text, our problem isn't just external um, in the things that surround us. There's also another dynamic at play. As we see, we're not just following the the world in the physical realm, we're also following something in a spiritual realm. Verse 2 continues and it says this, we're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so here it is that we see the spirit we're following by nature is not the Holy Spirit, but you could say it's the unholy spirit who is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is actively at work in the sons of disobedience, and it's the devil. And apart from Jesus, not only were we following the course of a fallen world, we were also following in the ways of a disobedient spirit, which is the same spirit that appeared as a deceptive serpent and deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, which ultimately led to the fall of man, where death entered the cosmos and fractured all of creation, and where God and man were separated due to sin. And so whether you knew it or not, from the moment you were born, you weren't following Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, you were following the devil, who is the prince of the power of the air and the father of lies. And I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you, when you hear talk about the devil. But according to C.S. Lewis, there's two equal and opposite errors we can make about the devil and his demons. One is that we disbelieve their existence altogether. And the other is that we do believe them, but we have an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, believing that they're behind every bush and are the cause of everything that goes wrong in the world. And being someone who grew up in a very Pentecostal charismatic church, I can tell you from personal experience how easy it is to get carried away um, with things that pertain to the spiritual realms like angels, demons, and the devil, and becoming hyper aware and focused on their existence and activity in the world. But as we just heard from Lewis, and, and as we see in our text, we'd be equally foolish to think that the devil doesn't exist. And he isn't at play in our lives, trying to tempt us and deceive us into following him and his ways. See, this has been his game plan from the very beginning. He is the deceptive serpent, the spirit of disobedience, and the enemy of God in anyone who is made in God's image. And one of his main tactics of trying to maintain his control and power over your life is to get you to believe that the lie, this lie that God is bad and that he himself is good. He wants you to believe that he actually loves you and cares about you. But this is all just part of his trap. And we all know this moment, right? Whatever the specific sin might be for you, it's in those moments of extreme temptation as you're contemplating whether you're going to do the sin or not. And sure enough, just in the nick of time, every time, your groomer appears and he just begins making promises of fulfillment and satisfaction in the things other than God to you he whispers, come on, just do it. Like, it'll be quick. No one's going to know. And I promise you it's going to feel good. And so what do we do? We give in. And once we commit the sin, like a flip of a switch, like a snap of a finger, he goes from being your biggest advocate, cheering you on to do it. Like, come on, just do it. To then becoming your greatest adversary, preaching condemnation over you because of what you just did. See, he doesn't love you or actually want what's best for you. Deep down, he hates God. And because you're made in God's image, he hates you. Like, you need to know that. But we get to this third element, and we see it's the flesh. And so we read in verse 3, "...among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." And so unlike the world and the devil, which are both uh, experienced externally and universally, we experience the symptoms of the flesh internally and personally. And if it wasn't bad enough that we find out that the world that we're born into is broken and sinful and continually moving away from God, it only gets worse as we discover that this world that we're living in is being controlled by a demonic dictator, the devil, who hates God and tries to keep you from him. But it goes deeper than that. And just when you think it couldn't possibly get worse, we see that our flesh is also a part of this problem. And the evil that we experience in this world isn't just out of these external things like the world and the devil. It's also in here. It's in, it's in me. It's in you. It's in all of us, in the passions of our flesh and express in the desires of the body and the mind. And just like Genesis 3.6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes, And then the tree would be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Guys, this is what we do all the time. This is what we do when we deliberately disobey the commands of God by living for our flesh um, and only being concerned with pleasing ourselves. And so we just continue to go after our desires where we do whatever we want, whenever we want the exact way that we want it to be. And when we do this, to use the words of Romans one twenty five, we have exchanged the truths about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so as we see in verse 3, those who live in the passions of the flesh um, are not, and not for the praise of God's glory are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so though, for those who by their nature are spiritually dead, which is all of us in here, and are following the world, the devil, and the flesh are also by the, this very nature. We're children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And that is the pinnacle of the problem. We are children of wrath. That wrath is coming. But thankfully, God has a solution. Verse four says, But God. And if there's ever been a time to circle a word or underline or highlight something in your Bible, it's right here with these two words. Honestly, these two words are probably just enough of a solution that I could just go sit back down and stop talking, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep reading and tell you the goodness of this. And so here's what it says. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. See, this is why Good Friday is good. And it's not because of anything good about you or me or anything that you brought to the table. Nothing about you or me makes Good Friday good. Good Friday is good because it is God's solution to our greatest problem. And God solved our greatest problem by sending his son to the cross to die the death that we deserve because of our trespass and sin so that we who were once by nature spiritually dead children of wrath would become spiritually alive as God's children. And it's here on the cross where Jesus was our substitute upon upon a bloodstained tree, where Jesus wore the crown of thorns that we might wear the crown of life, where Jesus was wounded that we might be healed, where Jesus was condemned that we might be pardoned, where Jesus was abandoned that we might be accepted, where Jesus was made to be sin that we might be declared and ultimately made righteous by God where Jesus pleased the Father whom we had angered, where Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath that we might drink the waters of life, where Jesus died that we may live, where Jesus was shamed for our shameful sin, where Jesus was showered with judgment that he didn't deserve so that we might be showered with the grace that we do not deserve. And it's here at the cross where we see that Jesus overcame the ways of the world by denying himself and living in perfect obedience to the Father. And it's where Jesus crushed the serpent's head and defeated the devil by triumphing over him. And where Jesus freed us from our slavery to our flesh by putting on flesh and dying for our sins. This is why Good Friday is good. And now what we're going to be doing is we're going to transition to a time of reflection. Where really I just want us to take a few moments to think about who we were apart from Jesus and who you would be today if it wasn't for the cross? If you hadn't been for the grace and the mercy of God, solving our greatest problem on the cross, who would you be today? And so during this time, what I want you to do is take that piece of paper and that pen that's on your chair and just spend time reflecting on that question and maybe just writing down a few answers or a few words to this question. And the question that I want you to answer is this, who would you be today if it wasn't for the cross of Jesus Christ? Like, which words would describe you? Which sins would define you and control you? So again, who would you be today if it wasn't for the cross? And now during this time of personal reflection, uh, you're going to notice that the worship team is coming up here, and they're going to start to play a song in the background. And while they're playing, um, I do just want to give you a few minutes to write something down on that piece of paper. And then once you're ready you can head on to the table right here in the center uh, to participate in communion. And you can do so by setting your paper in the bowl and then grabbing the bread and dunking it in the juice and then taking it there. And then once you receive these elements in celebration, reminding yourself that just like when you exchanged um, that paper for the bread in the juice, On the cross, Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed and all of our sins were exchanged for his perfect righteousness. So after you've done this, you can head back to your seat and you can join in singing the rest of the song. So Jesus is the true bread and the true drink. Come and receive his grace. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.